This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. On this episode, I chat with Joe Duffy about coordinating cloud engineers and serverless developers. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 54. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Duffy. Hey, Joe. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So you are the CEO and founder of Pulumi. Can you give the listeners a little bit about your background and tell us what Pulumi does? Yeah, uh, happy to. So I you know, founded Pulumi actually three years ago. Uh, and before that, I was um, an early engineer on the .NET framework at Microsoft. I was actually at Microsoft for a hearty 13 years, um, uh, working in and around developer tools the entire time, managing groups. You know, I, I actually led um, the, the languages team before leaving, um, helped with the open source transformation at Microsoft, which was really cool to be a part of, uh, and then founded Pulumi. And Pulumi is a modern infrastructure as code platform that really brings everything we know and love about application development using great programming languages, great tooling, and actually brings it over to the infrastructure side of, of the house and really trying to help both infrastructure teams be super productive with great tools, but also empower developers to use more of the cloud as part of their sort of application architecture itself. Awesome. All right, so you just mentioned there, you know, cloud engineers or the infrastructure team and then serverless developers, right? And so, I look at this and I and I tend to think, especially with smaller organizations, they're almost becoming one in the same. But as you as you get larger organizations and you start to separate that responsibility, and whether you have separate cloud teams, um, you know, and separate developers, or you know, different different sort of cells that do that kind of stuff, there is kind of this separation between you know the infrastructure DevOps people and the serverless developers. Can you explain that difference? Yeah, I, I definitely, and I agree. I think, you know, developers are doing more infrastructure now than they've ever done in the past. And I think serverless is really forcing this issue a little bit. You know, is a serverless function infrastructure or is it code, right? right. The, line, the line's a little blurry. But there's clear things that are still in the infrastructure domain. Um, for example, setting up a virtual private cloud in Amazon, uh, setting up a network, setting up a Kubernetes cluster. Even if you're going to run serverless functions within Kubernetes, um, somebody's got to manage the cluster. Right. Somebody's got to think about security. Somebody's got to think about monitoring. And, and, and some of that actually falls on the application side. A lot of it falls on the infrastructure side. And so you know, I, I think of it as you know, there are deep domain experts in the infrastructure space just like there are deep domain experts in the application space. And I think the magic of what we're seeing with serverless in particular is that these the line is getting a little blurry. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's more of a policy decision, I like to say, than a technology decision about who does what, right? You know, the infrastructure team is gonna do the network because that's what they know how to do. They're, they're experts in that. The, the development team probably doesn't wanna become domain experts in how to set up networks. And similarly, you know, the infrastructure team doesn't wanna become domain experts in how serverless functions work. And so it's, right. it's better if the developers can be self-serve and really you know, own their own destiny there. And I think the tools and workflows really need to support the concept of these two uh, disciplines working closer together going forward. And I love that you use the phrase cloud engineering because that's really what I think of. It's the best of developers, the best of infrastructure engineers really collaborating together. Right. And so so that's sort of interesting because I totally agree with that. And and where where then are these challenges or or what are these new challenges then that 
you're seeing both sides face, right? Because as a developer, like you said, you need to get a little bit closer to the infrastructure. As a uh, as an infrastructure person, you need to get a little bit closer to the configurations that the developers are setting up. So, like, what what are the challenges for the developers? I think you know infrastructure is hard. Um, you know, for developers specifically, I think you know no no serverless function is an island. Right, a serverless function is only interesting when it's paired with the infrastructure that right. triggers an event, uh, whether that's in you know a, a bucket, you know you want to do something every time a file gets added, or you know an API gateway where you're actually using serverless functions for kind of infinite scale on the back end. It needs to be connected to infrastructure, and historically, what that's meant actually one of the reasons we founded Pulumi was, you know, I, I got really excited about serverless and containers, and I you know I wanted to create a serverless application and. And it was great until I had to configure the infrastructure. I wrote, you know, a hundred lines of JavaScript for a nice little serverless application. I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go. What do I do next? Uh, oh, uh, for every 10 lines of JavaScript, I have to write a hundred lines of YAML. Right. That yes. was not pleasant, right? <laughs> and, and so that, that was one of the problems we wanted to solve uh, was really, okay, let's just make it feel like we've got a real programming model and application model mm -hmm. where we're just building serverless applications and the infrastructure is part of that. Um, not all of it again, but a lot of it uh, really should be closer to the applications. And most of the technology today doesn't have that worldview. And so there's kind mm -hmm. of a fundamental friction and mismatch. Right. And I, I think that's one of the things that you see more of now, especially with developers, they have to they have to take the infrastructure into consideration now when they're writing code. Like they didn't used to necessarily need to worry about that. Now it's like my code I know is going to interact with some other piece of infrastructure, um, which I think is a challenge there too. But so what about the infrastructure side or the, the dev slash ops people, uh, or should I should say the ops people, what are the challenges that, that they face now that they've got, you know, people kind of meddling with their infrastructure? Well, it's really, it is a challenge to empower developers to, to manage more of the infrastructure because there really is this, I think most technologies today, most, most teams today assume that there's this hard wall between the two sides of the house. As you pointed out, for smaller companies and companies who are born in the cloud, who are starting today, they have the advantage of not creating those, those silos. Um, but, you know, for most teams, there, there is a hard wall between them. So... And, and for good reason, because of these domain specializations and expertise. And I mean, to your point, you know, if 10 years ago, if I was just doing virtual machines, I talked to my infrastructure team once a year when I was doing capacity planning. It's like, right. well, you know, I need to go from three to four VMs and I need, you know, an extra database. Uh, can I have that in a quarter or a month? Things are just so fast paced these days. Right. The, the only way to keep up is to really empower the practitioners, the developers to actually control their own destiny. And you need to think about security when you're doing that, right? You know, we, we hear all the time, right? We hear all the time about, oops, a bucket was open on the internet and somebody slurped up all the credit cards, you know, yeah. those things happen all the time. And so how do infrastructure teams let their developers control their own destiny, but still make sure we're compliant, we're secure, costs are under control. All of those hard problems are still hard problems. Right, and, and you have this, overlap, right? So I mean, if I'm, if I'm a serverless developer, and I'm writing a Lambda function, um, maybe I'm not thinking about concurrency limits, right? But if I'm on the op side, then I'm thinking, well, hold on, we only have a 1000, or maybe we bumped it up to 5000 or whatever. So now you've got one particular function that could go rogue and, and consume all of my uh, concurrency capacity. So 
that overlap. So, I mean, I know there's challenges there, but how do you manage that overlap between those two competing things when they're working on the same, the same infrastructure, probably at the same time? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, it is tough. It's funny. In the early days of Pulumi, we actually were playing around. We created a Lambda that created Lambdas. Yeah. And it created, like for every Lambda, it created five more Lambdas. And we couldn't kill the thing fast enough to actually stop the thing from spreading. Right. And quickly right. added up to like $1,000, like in two hours. So um, so definitely it's a real challenge. I think um, to, there are tools out there that allow you to enforce constraints or guardrails, if you will, to say, hey, you need to stay within budget or you need to stay within compliance, uh, these guardrails, you know, we, we offer such a tool, um, called policy as code. So just mm -hmm. like there's infrastructure as code, there's also policy as code. That's one tool in the tool belt, uh, that you can use to enforce these things. Um, I think also there's just smart things you can do with, you know, setting up your accounts properly so that developers have their own sandboxes that they can play in and those yeah. are different than production. Um, some of these new CI CD capabilities where you can really, test things before rolling out to production, I think is also a key element of this. Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, like you said, sort of infrastructure as code is sort of that common language, I guess, between, you know, between both sides of those. Um, and that's always tough managing it too. I mean, it's, you know, I've seen that where, you know, somebody checks in something on one side, somebody code reviews it, and then they want to change it. And then next thing you know, something's not working right. Um, so certainly managing that is kind of crazy. But, but I also see not just serverless developers building tools or building applications for um, you know for serverless or I guess applications, but you have um, you have sometimes the ops engineers that are using it as well to write sort of automation things as well. Yes, absolutely, and I think I think DevOps you know kind of started this whole trend that that really laid the foundation for these two um, sides of the house really coming together. Uh, and that led to a lot of this automation that you're mentioning where, you know, on the operation side, we often do use code to automate things. And, you know, whether that's bash scripts, that's kind of a right. form of code or <laughs> Python scripts. Um, and so I think infrastructure teams are used to, to using code to solve some of these challenges. And I think what we try to do is, okay, as you say, the infrastructure is code platform. Let's, let's use general purpose languages so that application developers now have access to infrastructure and can do infrastructure as code. It's not intimidating. You don't have to learn a new DSL. Uh, you can use familiar tools and, and approaches. But then because of DevOps and because infrastructure teams are used to automation, now infrastructure as code using real languages doesn't seem so foreign, right? And it seem, and now we're speaking the same language. We have a common foundation to start from. Right, yeah. So let's talk about infrastructure as code a little bit more. So obviously you have a ton of experience with this and whether you're doing, you know, like a DSL, um, you know, like CloudFormation or something like that, or you're using the CDK or Pulumi or any of these other, you know, more scripting familiar type, um, uh, you know, now there's the new one for uh, for Kubernetes, uh, what's it called, like CDK8s or something like that. Right. <laughs> um, that just came out. So, uh, you know, whether you're using, you know, whatever, whatever you're using, I mean, how much do developers need to know infrastructure now? Yeah, I think really the more you can learn, the more powerful your your abilities will be, honestly. I think if you look at the building block services, Amazon has 200, you know, hosted services. Uh, Azure, Google Cloud, they have, you know, a large number as well. And I think, you know, if you, the way I think of it is, you know, you just think of those as building blocks that you can use to build more powerful software, Yeah. right? Um, if you want a data store, 
great. You've got a data warehouse at your fingertips. If you want a hosted AI, if you want to do speech recognition in your application, well, that's just a service. Now you can just take that building block and use it. And all those things are infrastructure, right? And so I think infrastructure is maybe has kind of an intimidating connotation to it, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, infrastructure is like virtual machines and these networks and everything. Infrastructure these days really has become a lot more of these hosted services that developers can harness to, to increase the capability of software. Um, that, that said, again, to my previous point, like you, you don't feel like you have to go super deep in networking, like public, private subnets, route tables, you know, right. some of these things are just like really not at the level of abstraction that most developers are thinking of and that's okay. Um, but I, I would, I would say, you know, don't think of the, the, the word infrastructure as a frightening term, you know, it really shouldn't be daunting. It really is a, a superpower that you can use in your application. Well, yeah. And I think that something that has changed certainly and like you said we're not talking about setting up vpcs or you know routing tables or some of that stuff we might be talking about using an sqsq or you know using uh you know blob storage or something like that so we're talking about using these components and that's great but we're no longer you know no longer given the option anymore of just saying like oh okay we have a kafka service running so we just use we just use that as our as our service um or as our you know as our our event bus um and we have a a, a database cluster set up and that is um, the database that we connect to. Now we're talking about setting up separate DynamoDB tables, um, an SNS topic, uh, SQSQs, right? Event bridge, uh, all these other things that we're just adding so many different components. And like you said, building blocks, but that's something that is, I think that goes beyond coding. Now, now we're talking about architectural design, right? We're talking about how we architect these applications. Where do developers fit in there, because obviously you can't just write one Lambda function. I mean, you maybe could, but you shouldn't write one Lambda function that does everything, right? You want to separate these into different building blocks and use all these different components. So how much do developers now need to start thinking about architecture? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you, if you were an architect, you know, I, I think senior developers always think about architecture. And right. I think that the, the kind of architecture just changes now. You know, if you go on a whiteboard and you draw the diagram of the architecture and they connect all these like these boxes, what are the boxes? Well, in the past, they might have been, uh, you know, monolithic applications with, you know, maybe little components within them. And uh, I'll, I'll date myself if I say what I was about to say, but like COM components or J2EE, right. you know, Java beans <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Like it's no longer those things. Now it's these services and microservices and they connect, you know, over RPC or, or what have you. But many of those building blocks that when you draw that system architecture now are going to be quote infrastructure. And that's great because infrastructure means you don't have to build it, right? You can use something off the shelf. Like you say, the, the database, the queues, the, the the SNS um, topic like you don't have to go hand code your own pub sub you know system you can just use one off the sh off the shelf and that's really powerful right and so the other thing about architecture and uh, I think assembling multiple things is in order for me to connect to DynamoDB or in order for me to connect to EventBridge um, there are a lot of permissions right I am permissions and that's the same in pretty much every cloud you use there are going to be sets of permissions that need to be configured. So that really opens up, you know, a lot of the security stuff. Now, we know the cloud is really great at perimeter security, right? Like we don't have to worry about somebody likely getting in and messing around, but a poorly coded application can expose issues, right? If I'm using third-party libraries, I, there's all kinds of security issues. Um, 
saving the data? Am I encrypting the data? You know, different compliance things. So that's another thing. Like, where does infrastructure as code, developers and ops people, where does that all come together to make sure that we've got not only things like reusability, but also compliance and security? And I think that's frankly the hardest part of this whole um, transformation. I think IAM is is something everybody has to think about. You know, security is something everybody has to think about. You can't you can't ignore it. Right. Um, there's but there's there's levels of security. You know, I think IAM is extremely fine grained. Right. Um, it's Maybe like, too fine grained in some cases. Right. And like, you know, it's kind of overkill for some scenario. Like once you get to the application tier, do you really need to think about like literally every fine grained permission for this Lambda? Or is it okay if your infrastructure team kind of gives you a sandbox and says, here's the permissions I'm comfortable giving my developers. Yeah. And they can do fine grained permissions within that box. But I'm going to give them something that's a, a reasonable starting point and assume that if they got everything wrong, it's not the end of the world. Right. And I think that's the key for infrastructure teams and developers working together is the infrastructure team needs to figure out, okay, what are the IM permissions I'm willing to give mm -hmm. to my developers? And then developers can think about it and they should think about it, but then it's not as uh, as much of a catastrophe if they get something right. wrong into the fine grained details. It's almost like, imagine if your Java application, every single object, you had to have ACLs on your object. I mean, that would be insane, right? right. That's kind of where we are with IM in some ways. Yeah, and I and I like this idea of infrastructure as code and CDKs um, for the reusability piece of it because I feel like that's the that's where I want to go where it's like all right I need to build some system that processes a queue uh, all right well what are all the things I have to do what are those permissions and so forth I don't want to have to write that by hand every single time I want to pull that off the shelf and say this connects to the queue this does all of the correct permissions and all that kind of stuff and then here's my code that actually processes the actual data or whatever so it would be it would be great if we could um, you know get to that point I think we're moving there but um, not quite there yet yeah and that's the direction that we're heading in for sure and we have lots of libraries actually a lot of our customers use Pulumi to do exactly what you're saying which is hey maybe a developer they don't want to think about you know all of the different pieces of uh, Kubernetes microservice. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe there are some security permissions that come with that. Maybe there there is you know maybe an RDS database. Maybe there is you know some services in an EKS cluster if they're in Amazon. Well, a developer may just want to come up and say, hey, give me a new microservice. Right. Uh, they don't want to think about all these pieces. And and if you use the code to create these abstractions real code with infrastructure as code, then the infrastructure team can build these abstractions that have built-in best practices, hand it off to developers, and not only know that it's gonna be secure and reliable and cost efficient, but now the developers don't have to think about every little detail of how that building block was, was created. Right. And I think that's definitely the direction that we're heading in. Awesome. All right, so we talked about developers and, and cloud engineers or infrastructure people working nicely together. And we know the DevOps thing um, is is pretty strong now. I think there are a lot of companies that have a good DevOps culture where they are working together. But you see silos all the time, right? Like you always see, it's like the developers over here and the infrastructure people over here. And they're like, hey, we want to do this. And they're like, nope, because there's a security issue or there's you know some other reason why you can't do that. Um, and I think it gets even crazier in the cloud because it's so easy to just grant people permission to something and let them do something. But you've got, you've just got, I guess, maybe market forces is the right word that kind of, um, you know, prevents these teams from working together. Like what, 
what are some of those you know like that, that's happening right now? What are some of the market forces, I guess, that that are keeping these things you know siloed? Well, I, th- I think frankly the, the the tools and technologies are very different. Uh, developers use a very different di- you know every day their day job they use a completely different set of tools than folks on the infrastructure side. Right. And so it's actually, even if we want to collaborate, it's actually kind of hard, right? Um, and, and this is something that we're trying to change with Pulumi where, okay, let's use Python, let's use JavaScript, let's use Go, you know, let's 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 at least speak the same language so we mm. can start making it a policy decision who does what rather than one implied by technology. Um, so I think that causes some of the silos. I think it really depends on the organization as well. I think, you know, the most disruptive companies that are, you know, transforming entire industries, frankly, using the cloud as a competitive advantage have figured this out yeah. uh, and they are figuring this out. And I think that is kind of forcing some of the, the sort of larger, maybe, you know, more established companies, let's say, to start reinventing how they're doing things. And so I think the market, the, the literal market forces are pushing people in that direction. It is uncomfortable too. I think we've we've actually put more dev in the ops than we've put ops in the dev. And I see yeah. like now it's going in the other direction, right? You, you look at observability and application performance management and infrastructure as code. These are things that developers now are thinking about every day. And even just five years ago, they weren't. So I think we're heading in the right direction, but it's definitely an uncomfortable, difficult transformation for for a lot of people. Right. And I mean, and DevOps as a culture, I think, is uh, is really an important step. And like you said, there are a lot of companies who figure this out. And it's great because it's sort of you get that agility, you get that speed, right? You you, re- you remove all those bottlenecks. But but has it I, I guess the, my question is, has DevOps also created more silos in a sense? Because now you've got really strict, you know, sort of processes in place. I think it I think it's helped connect the operations team with the developers unquestionably. The interesting thing is actually, if you look on the infrastructure side of things, I actually see silos within the infrastructure mm. side of the house. Um, you, you see like DevOps is is sort of a different silo than sysadmin, right? Where DevOps is, is happy to write some code, happy to write some scripts and sysadmin, maybe, maybe not so much. Maybe that's more like, you know, point and click ticketing kind of stuff. Um, and I think now you're seeing the emergence of like SRE and these more sort of advanced in infrastructure teams, which is even like a step beyond the, the DevOps uh, uh, approach where, you know, DevOps was kind of started 10 years ago. It's come a long way, but SRE is a relatively new practice that's actually even more like software engineering uh, than DevOps was. And so each of these like are sort of slightly different factions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does definitely cause a little bit of challenge because we're, that just means we're speaking five different languages instead of right. one. <laughs> right. And that, and I think that's part of the problem too, where you start seeing these silos within just the organizational team. That's why a lot of the companies create like these cloud, you know, these cloud teams that are, uh, you know, strictly dedicated to the cloud. But I guess, you know, as serverless, does this, one of those things I think maybe companies aren't ready for is giving developers more control and giving them more access, right? So it is just this shift to serverless, like, is that enough of a driver for people to be like, okay, you know, serverless is going to give make it faster, give us, you know, a uh, faster time to market, you know, uh, more productivity from our developers, faster development cycles or whatever. Um, you know, is that enough of a driver for these companies to change, you think? I think serverless on its own for some companies would be. I, what I see is 
for some companies, serverless is really important to their entire you know strategy, their mm -hmm. architecture. It's it's a naturally event driven architecture. It's way more cost effective for them to adopt serverless. I think for other organizations, it's a combination of things. You know, I actually think you know containers is another uh, function uh, forcing function for right. a lot of these things where you know building and publishing a container seems like it's something you can do without touching infrastructure until you start doing uh, you know uh, private registries mm -hmm. and hosted load balance services in ECS or Kubernetes. Now you need to actually consume those. So that that line starts to get blurry as well. So to me, it's the combination of serverless and containers combined with just the rapid pace of innovation and the fine grain, fine granularity of these services. Because you, you kind of pointed out earlier, you know, it's not these monolithic things anymore. It's just lots of little pieces that you need to stitch together. And that means things just move a lot faster in, you know, at a very fine granularity, which is even more difficult to stay on top of. And so I think all those combined together to really meaning the only way to keep up with the competition, frankly, uh, the competition being the ones that are the most innovative and have right. already figured this out, um, is to is to really empower developers. Yeah, and I wonder if the um, you know this on ramp of containers, which I think is great. I mean, I, you know, the, I'm not a fan of lift and shift. I think that you know just transferring everything into the cloud isn't going to give you much uh, savings, other than not having to manage that infrastructure anymore. Um, to well manage the physical infrastructure at least. Um, but the, the shift to containers, I like that. I think there's a really good on-ramp, but I don't see containers replacing all of these other cloud services too, right? So even if you're building your application on containers, you're still likely going to want to use SQS and RDS and DynamoDB. You're still going to want to use those things. So even that shift to me um, seems like it still opens up all these cans of worms that, you know, with security and everything around that. Absolutely. I, I mean, I we talk with customers all the time that are at various points along this journey. And anytime somebody says to me, well, I need, I'm going to run a MySQL database in my Kubernetes cluster and manage the persistent volumes and backups and everything on my own, and I'm running an AWS, my first question is, why aren't you using RDS? Right. Do you really need that level of complexity? And for some people, yes, the answer is absolutely that makes sense. For most people, it makes more sense to start with the hosted service. Uh, and so now you're like you say, you're, you're having to manage lots of these moving pieces and stitch them together. And, and it is infrastructure and infrastructure as code is the way to, to tame that complexity and chaos. Yeah, I totally agree. Hey everyone, I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Amazon Web Services, and tell you about an upcoming virtual fireside chat about serverless security. If you're curious about how security works in serverless, or you're part of a team or organization looking for answers, you'll want to check this out on Wednesday, June 24th. Two principal engineers in the serverless and security space, Mark Brooker and Becky Weiss, will discuss serverless security strategies and how serverless security works under the hood. You'll leave with a solid understanding of how you can operationalize a serverless security strategy in your organization. To learn more and register for this free event, check out the links in the show notes for this episode or visit bit.ly slash serverless security chat. That's bit.ly slash serverless security chat. What about developers responsibility, right? So we talked a little bit about it and maybe learning some infrastructure and, and learning some security and some of those things, but how much of that falls on them now? And how much should we 
I mean, I, I understand you can put in guardrails for certain things and you can do code reviews and you could have another, uh, you know, DevOps team or an ops team that's looking at some of these things. Maybe you have a sec op, you know, a sec DevOps or DevSecOps, what is it called? Anyways, you have some other team, right? One, some fancy team name that is, uh, that is looking over their shoulder and trying to do this. But, but how much of that do you expect those people to catch and how much of that responsibility now falls on the developer? Yeah, I think the the unfortunate thing is, you know, um, secure by default would be the ideal world to live in, where, you know, if you, you know, it's it's principle of least authority, right? Which which is generally regarded as the place to start from, because right. then if you don't need a permission, you don't get it. That's not the case today. So the, the example of S three buckets that I mentioned, you know. Uh, the default shouldn't be that an S3 bucket is open to the internet and Amazon is definitely going in that direction by adding controls and access blocks and things like that. That's the thing that a developer needs to be careful about is just know that the defaults aren't always secure. Mm. Uh, in fact, often they aren't. And so if you assume, um, you know, but you know, in the, in the early days, like you would write threat models, right? You, you Developers think about security. It's not like we never think about security. It's just kind of a different threat model. It's a different set of concerns, um, but it's it's a very transferable set of concerns. So I think you know it's not entirely foreign, but just you know have to know going in and eyes wide open that there are a lot of uh, foot guns out there. And I think when when you have these sister teams like the security engineering team, the infrastructure team. DevSecOps or SecDevOps. I always forget the uh, <laughs> I don't ordering as well. Either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, lean on them as well, because, you know, ideally those teams, kind of what I was saying earlier, they would set up your environment so that you can't shoot yourself in the foot, yeah. right? And that's easier said than done, but it is possible. Yeah. I mean, and I think the other thing you have with, with serverless now is that, you know, you can launch a Lambda function that's not in some private VPC, right? So it's in, you know, it's in the general VPC tech, well, it's technically in the VPC, it's in Amazon's VPC, but you can launch that function without having... Uh, all of those other security things in place, um, you know. So I just I, I I agree with you. I think that you know you want to lean on other people as much as possible. But I always now I mean more than I ever did before when I'm building something. I'm thinking about the security and I'm trying to think. Okay, um, you know what happens if this happens? You know what happens if this happens? And 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 what are the what are the uh, yeah sort of the uh, the worst case scenario. So I don't know. I, I, I agree that it's good to have those people to lean on, but I, I feel like developers maybe need to go a step further if they are building in the cloud. And that might just be this new thing called the cloud developer, right? Or a cloud engineer, as you said earlier, like that might just be the new normal and where you need to be as a developer. Yeah. And I think it's it. the complicated thing is the execution environment of the cloud is very different, right? It, most developers are used to writing code that runs in one monolithic context, right. like on a server or on a desktop. Um, in the cloud, your code is, especially serverless, is spread across lots and lots of different servers, or you, know, you may not even have the concept of a server, server if you're doing serverless, mm -hmm. but that thing has permissions, right? That execution context has permissions. And you need to think about, are those the right permissions? And what if somebody were able to get code to run in that context that I didn't expect. And is that possible? Right. And then you need to think about the network perimeter, you know, your VPC example, who can access this thing? What are the APIs that are exposed? And what are the capabilities of those APIs? Is there authentication? Is there authorization attached to it? How does that work? I, I really think it, you, you gotta think 
to your point earlier, like architecture, you have to think architecture, you need to draw it on a whiteboard and right. think what, what is the security threat model for this overall architecture? And that's the way to go. And I, I agree, you can't exclusively lean on you know, a separate team, especially some companies don't have those teams. And so right. you really need to take matters into your own hands. Yeah, totally agree. All right, so um, let's move on to some tips because I think that you have been working with a lot of companies um, so what are some of these processes that companies can put into place um, that help them, you know, sort of, I guess, adopt serverless faster by you know, creating a, a better relationship between the developers and the, uh, and the cloud uh, engineers or infrastructure people? Well, I think you have to figure out the tools and the workflows. I think those, those, the tools, the workflows and the processes, it's really, it comes down to those three things. And, you know, I'm biased, I think, you know, uh, some a tool and a workflow that works great for developers and infrastructure teams, mm -hmm. I think just means that if you don't get it right on day one, you can always change your mind down the road, right? It's not like, oh, you know, you folks over there are going to use this set of tools and you over here, you're going to use that set of tools. Like once you make that decision and people start building stuff using that, it's incredibly hard to reverse that. Um, so that's important to get right on day one. I think um, from a process standpoint, you know, I, I really do think finding some way where guardrails are in place it is really critical um, because, you know, you don't want, you know, developers to always have to come and, and file tickets to get changed. Like you really just want to empower them to run full speed ahead and know and sleep, sleep soundly at night, knowing that nothing bad is going to happen. I also think by, you know, using infrastructure's code, you can use familiar coding techniques like code reviews, mm -hmm. right? So like change management, you can actually just use code reviews, and you know pipelines and a lot of these CI/CD platforms these days just raises the visibility for the whole organization in terms of like what code is running where, who's pushing what change, because uh, you know in the event that something does go wrong, you're going to need to go and find out you know when it happened, where did it come from, who do I go talk to, uh, so that's also important. So I think it's really the tools, the workflows, and the processes, and they really need to all gel and ideally you know, not fundamentally different for the infrastructure team than the developers. Right. Yeah. And I actually really like, I mean, one of the greatest things about infrastructure is code is I remember back in the day I was uploading a, you know, a Perl script to a, to a web server somewhere that was running in a CGI bin. Um, and I would just upload that file. Oh, I needed a new server. I had to go configure that server separately, you know, set up uh, Apache and do all those configurations. Um, you know, things got better as we moved towards, uh, you know, things like OpsWorks or, uh, you know, Puppet and Chef and those sort of things um, because it helped repeat those infrastructure deployments. But now it is so easy to spin up a new environment, especially if you're all in serverless, right? If you're using DynamoDB and SQS, you can spin these things up and tear them down. Um, I love that approach, too, where you give developers a lot of flexibility to put something out there in sort of a test or QA environment or something like that, or maybe just a, a dev environment, and then have that move through, you know, a CICD process, um, you know, go through a code review if it needs to, and some of those other things. I, I really like that process because I think that that gives the developers that freedom to play around and actually get stuff up and running in that sandbox environment, um, but then still put in those checks and have all that sort of change management and that process management um, in there as well. Um, so just uh, one more question on that because I think this is, this is something where, like we said, you know, you've got developers thinking about architecture and then you might have ops people thinking about architecture as well. Where, where's the delineation of responsibilities? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting, especially with 
Kubernetes, one, one thing we're seeing is there's sort of like the infrastructure operators right. and the application operators. And it's sort of like this natural divide is sort of happening where there's like the base layer of any architecture. And oftentimes it's shared, you know, maybe it's company-wide and shared amongst lots and lots of applications. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, maybe more fine-grained than that, but it's, you know, it's sort of the networking, the base security, the cluster, maybe some of the data services, um, encryption services. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of like fundamentals layer that definitely the infrastructure team is, is if you're in a larger company, is going to be the one who manages that. Got to get that right 100%. It moves a lot less uh, frequently. You know, you change it occasionally, but it's pretty stable once you get it up and running. You might need to scale it up. You might need to go to new regions, things like that. Then on top of that is all the application services. And I think the application services, that that's the stuff you want the developers to, to manage. That's serverless capabilities. It's server, you know, data stores, you know, Aurora, S3, uh, Cosmos, if you're on Azure, yeah, right. those, those level of things. Um, and services like load balanced services, those really belong at the top. Now, unfortunately at the very front, you know, from a networking standpoint, you sometimes have CDNs and some of the load balancers can get complicated, uh, and public subnets. And so that cuts back over to the infrastructure team. Uh, but it's stuff, basically most of the stuff above the line really yeah. should go to the developers ideally. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. I mean, and especially it's like. A developer, you don't want a developer going in there setting up an RDS cluster with all the security groups and everything that's surrounded there. I mean, they certainly can, um, but if you've got a larger team and you've got somebody that can handle that, that's definitely uh, definitely the way to go. Um, all right. So another thing that you you know that Palumi does is it deals with multi clouds, right? And I hate the term multi-cloud because it's one of those things where it depends on what people are trying to do, right? Are we trying to be cloud agnostic, which is probably a really, really bad um, idea, or are we just trying to find the best services in cloud A versus cloud B and, and use them all together? So just in your experience, because I always love hearing this feedback, um, how have companies that are using Pulumi and the, and the customers you've talked to, how are they embracing or using multi-cloud? Yeah, it's it's a pretty broad spectrum. As you say, you know, usually trying to abstract over what makes it, you know, each of the clouds special and unique is probably not a, a great idea. But there's some some areas where that works. You know, Kubernetes is a good example where we we're finally sort of kind of agreeing on what what it means to run a container in one of the cloud environments. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of I think of that as almost the the POSIX or Unix API of uh, you know running container-based compute, but it doesn't go much beyond that. So for multi-cloud, um, you know, we see a number of things. One, you know, as you say, each cloud has different services, right? And so you might want to use, um, you know, a, a service in, in Amazon, you might want to use S3 in Amazon, and then, you know, uh, machine learning in uh, Google Cloud, for example. And that's that's totally fine. Uh, and, and furthermore, it's not always just the major clouds, right? You might be using Cloudflare, right. you might be using Datadog, New Relic, MailChimp, there are these infrastructure service providers that are part of the infrastructure and you need to manage the, the, the infrastructure on those uh, as well. There's very basic reasons like, you know, we work with a customer, they were running in Azure and they got acquired by a company that runs everything in, a in AWS. And did that company want to, you know, force them to rewrite everything, you know, just because they acquired them? Well, no, they, they didn't. It wasn't the most cost-effective thing. So now they're multi-cloud. They didn't really plan on it, but they are. <laughs> Uh, the other pattern we see is companies selling a SaaS 
if I'm selling a SaaS that runs in my customer's cloud, do I want to say I can only run, you know, I can only sell to Azure customers or AWS right. or whatever cloud I happen to pick? Probably not. You probably want to architect it so you can be flexible and sell to customers running in all these different clouds. And so that's a common pattern. I don't see much, you know, folks talking about that, but we see that actually quite a bit uh, with our customers. Do you see any vendor lock-in concerns? Is that an argument that um, that comes up? It does sometimes, um, you know, I, and for us, it's actually part of why Pulumi is interesting. You know, it's not tied to one particular cloud, so, but that's less of a, that's just more admitting the reality that many people have to deal with multiple clouds right. and they have to move someday down the road. We saw some people, you know, wanting to avoid lock-in, some people using it for maybe price negotiation at a very high C-level, uh, you know, conversation. But, you know, most of the time when, when, uh, a CIO makes that decision or something, their entire team is grumbling because it just adds so much pain and so much friction right. um, because they have to abstract over everything. I think the workflows being cloud agnostic is a good thing. You know, policy as code, infrastructure as code, that being consistent no matter which cloud you're going to go to is great. But once you get down to the actual building block services, they're very different in each of the cloud providers and yeah. trying to abstract over them is is usually a fool's errand. Right. Yeah, it's the lowest common denominator thing, right? We don't want to pick something. We want to pick the best service for our application. And if you're trying to do something that you can duplicate across multiple clouds or with the fear that someday I might need to move this thing, I think the amount of investment you make in that is more than it would be to re-engineer it to move it to a different cloud later. Um, all right, so so what about like what's next for infrastructure as code or just for serverless? I mean, we talked a lot about you know like CDKs and being able to repackage things, reuse things like that. But uh, you know it, that in and of itself is still kind of uh, you know still kind of you know a problem in terms of learning curves, right? Like you still need to know all the individual services. You still need to know exactly how you're stitching these things together. So is this like something where there's going to be more collaboration? Is there going to be like a higher level of abstraction? Like what is, what is that next step? Yeah, I, I totally agree. We're, we're very early days. I mean, I, something, you know, Pulumi, what we've done is we've taken those building blocks and we've exposed them in general purpose languages and given you an infrastructure code platform where you can manage infrastructure reliably and you can bring that closer to your applications. But in, we've added some abstractions, but definitely the average developer, you know, who really just wants to get up and running very quickly and not have to worry about, you know, a lot of the low level details, you know, the, the cloud APIs really were designed for infrastructure, you know, uh, circa 10 years, you know, five years ago, 10 yeah. years ago, like they're not really designed for great, uh, usability. And so you, you think of like a developer, it's almost the, the, my horrible aging analogies, but like, it's almost like on, you're going to build a windows application. Are you going to program and C against the win 32 API, or are you going to use like Node.js or Python or something that you're hyper productive in? Right. We're still very much in the win 32 C days. Um, I think we'll get there. I think, you know, Pulumi, one of the things we're really excited about is it gives this foundation. So we start building these higher level abstractions and it's not like, you know, a, a Heroku or a Paz. I love Heroku. The, the challenge most customers run into is once they hit a level of complexity, they say, oh, now I need to abandon the platform because mm -hmm. it's it's too high level, right? right. So the, the question is, can we have that high level while still connecting to those lower level building blocks in a way that works at scale 
in some of the largest organizations. I think that's where we're trying to get to, but it's definitely super early in that journey. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things for me that I see a lot, especially now that everybody's working from home um, and you've got a lot of remote workers, right? I mean, people trying to collaborate on larger blocks of infrastructure or larger applications where you may have, you know, maybe you have 10, 15 microservices, maybe you have 100 microservices, and each one of those has, you know, 50 different services in it or, or, you know, lambdas and, uh, you know, queues and all these other things that are happening. Um, it gets really hard to manage. And even if you're using, um, you know, uh, you're using, you know, cloud formation or you're using the CDK or you've got a really good, you know, uh, uh, code repository uh, and, a, and a good workflow for all that, you still have, you know, a lot of different things to manage. So like, what do you see this, you know, what do you see maybe being the tool of the future, um, you know, besides Pulumi maybe, but like, what's that, what's that tool? Like, how are people going to be able to collaborate across the world on all these different things and organize them better than just text files in a, in a, in a repo? Yeah, I think what we're really on the verge of is distributed computing. I, I think, you know, finally we're to the getting to the stage where we're moving from monolithic single computer programs. We, we went through concurrency with the multi-core era and figured out how to do asynchronous programming. Mm -hmm. So now every language in the world supports asynchronous programming, right? right? Uh, with async await and tasks and promises and these things. Now we're about to do that with uh, distributed computing. These fundamental concepts of having lots of little pieces that communicate with each other, our programming languages need to better support that and our programming models. And it needs to be more first class. And ironically, I don't know if if, if I should say this, but I, th I feel like we're almost like converging with developers and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And if we really do figure out some of these distributed computing programming models, I think they might diverge, you know, a little bit because at that point, you know, developers really don't want to think about literally every small building block. They want to think about these higher level programming patterns and application models. And there are some, you know, folks that are trying to do this already and they're very exciting. I think, you know, it's, it's going to be like a 10 year journey to get right. there. I think, you know, it took most of the 2000s, 2010s just to figure out async, right? So these things take a while, but I think that's probably where we'll end up. Awesome. All right. Well, Joe, I appreciate you being here and I do want to give you, um, a minute just to explain, you know, what Pulumi is doing to sort of solve this problem. Yeah, so Pulumi, by choosing general purpose languages for infrastructure as code, you can build reusable abstractions. You get you get everything we know and love about languages, which which is great. It's a great foundation, you know, testing, um, for loops, functions, right. you know, basic abstraction. But you can really build these reusable uh, components. And I think for serverless, uh, the team's a bunch of ex, you know, compiler nerds. Actually, you know, our CTO is a uh, founder, one of the two original guys who founded the TypeScript project, for example. Oh, great. Um, great. And so we figured out some cool ways on how to do serverless computing where lambdas really are lambdas in your favorite language. You don't have to do this 10 lines of code and 100 lines of YAML. Um, so it's really exciting. As we've discussed, it's super early days, but we've I think we've laid a solid foundation and it's open source. We've got a great community uh, support every cloud provider you can imagine uh, over three dozen other infrastructure providers. So very powerful, great for developers, also great for infrastructure teams who are trying to build that bridge uh, between the two sides of the house. 
Awesome. All right. Well, Joe, again, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you sharing all this knowledge. Um, I love what Palumi is doing. I think that, uh, like you said, early days, but hopefully things will continue to progress and people will, will move more towards serverless and companies will figure these things out. So if people want to get a hold of you or learn more, more about uh, Palumi, how do they do that? So Palumi.com is one-stop shopping for everything that blue getting started button will take you to download the open source. Uh, and then it's easy to go from there. Great tutorials for different clouds, depending on what you want to do next. Um, and then uh, follow us on Twitter, Palumi Corp. Uh, we've got a great community Slack where the whole team hangs out if you want help or talk about things. And then I'm, I'm on Twitter, Funk of Joe. Uh, always happy to chat with people, you know, DM me, they're open. Um, but definitely, you know, run into any questions, want any help, want to talk about anything, I'm always here to help. Awesome. Thanks again. I will make sure I get all that in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks, Jeremy. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Joe Duffy for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, Amazon Web Services. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 54. For more serverless chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.